Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. There are antiretroviral drugs available that can prevent new HIV infections among high-risk populations. So why are more people using the drug? Later this hour, we'll hear about PrEP and why it's controversial, despite the fact that drugs like Truvada reduce the risk of getting HIV from sex by more than 90 percent. That's according to the CDC. Also, it's been more than a week since Equifax, one of the big three credit reporting bureaus, disclosed it had been hacked. The news means hundreds of millions of Americans' private information has been stolen. So now what? Coming up, we'll hear from the Connecticut Department of Consumer Protection about how you should respond to prevent fraudulent accounts being created under your name. And we'll get perspective from a cybersecurity company on whether tighter regulations will force corporations to finally get serious about protecting personal data. But first, local politics is anything but dull. Have you been following the drama at the state capitol? Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This weekend, lawmakers actually voted on a budget. Here's one of three Democratic senators who crossed party lines on Friday. Yes, I may be risking my political career. My party may not be happy with me. But to be honest, frankly, I don't care. The Connecticut House representatives went on to also pass the GOP budget by a vote of 77 to 73. And you heard there State Senator Paul Doyle. But Governor Malloy is poised to veto the budget plan. To tell us more, Keith Faneff joins us by phone. He's the Connecticut Mirror's budget reporter. Keith, welcome back to the show. Well, thanks for having me. Are you surprised by what transpired this weekend? I mean, I think everybody to a certain degree is surprised in that nobody could have predicted exactly all the chaos that would have happened this weekend. Um, I'm not surprised, though, that there's still no consensus on the budget. I think just about everybody who's been following it would tell you this weekend it was still a long shot that we'd get out of it with a budget that was going to be signed, not just because of Governor Malloy, because of everybody. I mean, nobody has really adopted a plan that is um, without serious questions, without serious problems. And that includes the one that's on its way to the governor's desk. So remind us again how we got to this point. So the legislature is more than two and a half months late in passing a budget for this current fiscal year. On Saturday, this first GOP budget passed in the General Assembly. I've read the first uh, Republican budget to pass in decades. So tell us what's in this Republican plan and why um, Governor Malloy has vowed to veto it. Well, well, I guess in fairness, maybe we could talk a little bit about what, what is and what is not in it, because um, I think what made it attractive mm-hmm. to people was that um, it, and, and this is an important distinction, it is not, emphasis not, um, with, it is not lacking in new taxes. There are, absolutely are tax increases in there. In fact, if you if you total them up, there are more than... Uh, 700 million, actually more than 800 million taxes, tax increases over the biennium. Um, but <clears throat> the biggest tax increase by far 
about $340 million a year or, or $680 million over the biennium is a tax increase that the hospitals actually are willing to support. Um, the, the, a lot of this has been distorted. The hospitals didn't run out and say, oh, please tax us. But once they saw that the writing was on the wall, they agreed to an increase in the fashion where we use this money, we tax the hospitals and actually hand the money right back to them and it leverages more federal aid. So people felt, well, that's the kind of tax increase I can vote for. However, there's a major, a major tax increase on the working poor in this Republican plan. Um, over two years, they lose about $150 million off their income tax refunds. Um, <clears throat> that, that will tend to be very controversial. Um, so uh, on, on the revenue side, there were those problems, but it eliminates public financing for state elections, and a lot of people say that's going to bring us back to the days of um, <clears throat> Governor Rowland's campaigns and the uh, special interest money-dominated PACs that the Democratic majorities in the 90s and the 2000s enjoyed. Um, there is a huge cut, uh, Lucy, in uh, spending on state employee pensions that some people argue cannot legally be achieved um, because we have a benefits program that's locked in through 2027. We unilaterally make changes to the pension system after that. But we, we say, well, we can start taking the savings now. We'll basically just assume we can put in less now because the pension costs will go down after 2027. Many people say you can't do that outside of collective bargaining, and if we're wrong, not only will we lose in court, but we'll have to make up a lot of money. So, I mean, there were, there were deep cuts to higher education. None of these plans that we've seen out there are, are clean or without big flaws or big concerns. I mentioned that uh, the legislature is way behind uh, in passing a budget on time just because this GOP budget plan was approved and the, and Malloy has now vowed to veto it. So really, are they back to square one with two weeks to go before October 1st? I, maybe they're not back to square one, but they're maybe can they be on square three? I mean, it, <laughs> what's the old saying that if, if, if you if you learn what doesn't work, you've still made some progress. I think they're starting to see where they're going to have to compromise on. And then when I say they, I don't just mean Democrats and Republicans in general. Um, <clears throat> you have such a wide range of political interests from, from very liberal, very progressive Democrats in the far left um, to the conservative sections of the GOP. You have moderates like Governor Malloy, uh, Senators Hartley Doyle and Slosberg in the Senate, some of the moderates in the House. Um, and they built public expectations all all year, we can close a major deficit without raising taxes. And I think mathematically, everybody's basically conceded that was never correct. You know, whether it was Governor Malloy saying we're not going to lead with revenue or the Republicans saying we simply won't accept taxes, and then they accept about $800 million in taxes, um, which doesn't always get reported. Um, it's, it's getting to the point where people are starting to let go of some of their wishful thinking. So in that sense, I think we are moving closer. And just to remind people, if we don't make adjustments to state spending, we originally were on pace to overspend by about 12% this fiscal year to run $2.3 in deficit. The concessions deal, the labor concessions deal that was ratified this summer, knocked that deficit down to about $1.6 But that still is a huge 
gap. I mean, that's about an 8% deficit if we don't adjust spending in the current fiscal year. Not to mention, it's about seven times the very small amount of money that we have in our emergency reserve and our rainy day fund. So if we don't clean things up, we have to go back and borrow um, to pay our bills. This is where we live. On the phone with us, Keith Faneff, Connecticut Mirror's budget reporter. Um, if you want to join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Uh, how do you think uh, your lawmakers are doing in, to try to solve uh, the state's uh, uh, budget woes? Again, you can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Now, Keith, uh, what, let's talk a little bit about uh, what towns uh, and cities uh, could lose uh, October 1 uh, with this deadline. Again, if the if the legislature can't come up, come into agreement uh, to a plan that Malloy wouldn't veto. What happens October 1st? Yeah, nothing Nothing good happens on October 1st, Lucy. And actually, it's, it's already started the bad things. The bad things just accelerate in a couple weeks. By this point in time a year ago, towns had already received about $120 million in non-education aid. I'm talking about some general property tax relief grants and some road repair money that did not go out this year because of the lack of a budget. So on September 30th, things get a little worse. There's a grant called Pilot Payment in Lieu of Taxes. It's what we give cities and towns to make up for the fact that state property and uh, nonprofit colleges and hospitals are exempt from property taxation. On September 30th last year, they got a $180 million pilot grant. Without a state budget, they get nothing. So before we even get to October 1, the communities are, are down $300 million compared with they were a year ago. And Pilot, we should point out, is very important to Hartford because half the property in Hartford is exempt from municipal taxation. They rely on their Pilot grant specifically. So that's going to strain the cash flow that Mayor Bronin is really worried about. Again, he told everybody his projections show them hitting insolvency potentially as early as the month of October. Then you take into account last last grant, the education cost sharing grant by law. It's got to go out some point in the month of October. Could go out any point. Last year it went out October 25th. Governor Malloy said he wants to send it out October 1 because of Hartford. He wants to make sure that at least, you know, the, the city gets that check granted. All the money has to go for the school district, but the way, you know, money's fungible in a budget, that would still help Hartford with pay its bills on time. Um if there's no budget, that ECS grant will still go out, but it's going to be reduced by something like 28%. That's about another $125 million for all the cities and towns combined. We have a listener on the line. Now, George is calling from Hamden. George, go ahead. Yes, thank you. Uh, glad to talk with you, Keith. Uh, Keith, uh, the thing I'm concerned about is that with the, uh, with the union deal that got made, uh, and that basically the uh, we get a little bit of help for two years, a lot of help for two years, but after that, the uh, the unions become a problem again. And I I, I just don't think that we have uh, adequately uh, adequately at the heart of so much of this uh, uh, this spending. Okay, could I could I quickly pose a question to you? Certainly. Yeah, and I, and I don't I don't mean this in a smart alecky kind of way at all. Um, if you got a bill from your parents, you found out that twenty years ago they threw a party, and the food's been eaten, the guests have gone home, all the money spent, 
but they arrange for you to get the bill from the caterers now. And by the way, in, in my hypothetical here, you, you, you have to pay the bill. There's no bankruptcy. There's nothing like that you can turn to. You get this enormous bill. How are you going to cut the cost? There's nothing to return. Is there anything you can do to cut the cost? I'm not sure what the answer is. Right, uh, and as nonsensical uh, as that question is, that's the problem the state's dealing with. So when you talk about our union situation, people are mad because the state employee pension contribution is skyrocketing. The teacher's pension contribution is skyrocketing even faster. Even though we supposedly stabilized the state employee pension, our definition of stable is like a 43% increase over the next four years. That's happening because about 85% of those costs do not involve saving for today's workers. And the part that's growing exponentially is not about saving for today's workers. It's paying a bill from the past, money that's already been spent because we didn't properly fund our pensions for 80 years. So when people say there's got to be some way to stop the growth in state spending, you are trying to return groceries you already ate and consumed. And people think, well, how big a share of the budget can, can that be? Can I cut everything else? 20 years ago, our debt costs were 12% of the general fund. Today, they're 33% already. And at the pace they're growing, by the time we get into the 2030s, they'll be, they'll be more than half, maybe even more than 60% of the budget. I mean, you're, you, that's not sustainable. You, you can't just do that with um, – I'm not talking about – what should be done? I'm not trying to make an argument on moral grounds for raising taxes. I'm saying mathematically, you can't fit things that you would consider vital into the budget and still pay that bill. So, Keith, what happens now? I think what happens now is, again, unfortunately, that, that situation that I just told you about, Lucy, does not get dealt with until after the next gubernatorial election at the earliest. This budget is just a plan to put off dealing with the problem I just described for another administration. It does not, I mean, the, 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 uh, probably the most telling thing is that they'll, they'll try to get a budget that just gets us through this year and next, but does not head off that thing. Um, I just told you that if we don't make adjustments to spending, this fiscal year would run $1.6 billion in deficit, and I'm sorry to throw these numbers out fast. Next fiscal year would run $1.9. If you add them up quickly, we would overspend over this biennium by $3.5 billion. The Democratic budget that they wanted to run this weekend says, if you do this, it'll balance the books for two years, but then the next two-year cycle after that has a built-in hole of $3.5 billion. Sound familiar? It's the same deficit. And the vaunted Republican budget has a hole between 3.3 and 3.4. None of these deal with the long-term problem in a substantive way. You, you mentioned the gubernatorial election. Also, next year, all 36 Senate seats are up for uh, re-election or up for election. Uh, so we'd like to have you back on again, Keith, uh, as we, uh, we try to see it if the legislature... problem then, I promise you. <laughs> I had a feeling you were going to say that. But Keith Fanoff, again, is the budget reporter for the Connecticut Mirror. You can read his work at ctmirror.org, and we'll tweet out some of his latest articles. Keith, thanks again for your time. Thank you so much for having me. Coming up, we check in on the fallout since the massive hack of Equifax. How do you protect yourself now? 
And what lessons can corporations, both large and small, learn from Equifax's mistakes? You can join the conversation. 860-275-7266. Email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Is any of our personal information really safe? That's the question on the minds of many of us since Equifax disclosed September 7th it had been hacked, affecting more than 140 million Americans. Of course, Equifax allowed a few months to pass before the company made the announcement, and conveniently, a few of its own executives sold off company shares before coming clean about the massive hack. So what do we do now? And what should happen to Equifax and other companies that allow these breaches to occur? Joining me in studio is Matt Kozlowski, Vice President of Professional Services at Kelser Corporation. It's a Glastonbury-based technology consulting firm that assists companies with cybersecurity. Matt, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Also in studio with us, Michelle Siegel, Commissioner of the Connecticut Department of Consumer Protection. Welcome to the show, Commissioner. Hi, thanks for having me. I'll start with Matt. So uh, tell us uh, uh, your take on uh, this this massive hack of Equifax and some of the mistakes this big company made in disclosing what really happened. Sure. So Sadly, this just kind of goes back to the age-old story of um, missing patches. You know, I get, um, you know, keeping on top of security incidents and understanding vulnerabilities can be complicated. There's a lot going on, and and software is incredibly complicated these days. However, you know, this was disclosed. Um, There was an opportunity to keep systems up to date. And in the regular course of consulting um, that we do for people that are, you know, serious about cybersecurity, they're doing things like running vulnerability scans, they're calculating risk. Um, you know, with Equifax and, and others, yeah, people want systems available and up and running 24 by 7. So that's where the rub comes in. It's like you have to take, you know, things down or certain components down to perform regular maintenance. But that really just needs to become a part of our routine kind of course of business with um, with managing these risks. Now, you said something about it all goes back to missing patches. For us for who may not understand what you mean, explain that. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> so everyone's relatively familiar with a bug, right? So um, software, like I said, is complicated. People write it. Um, there's always little, um, you know, vulnerabilities or kind of holes in it that, you know, was probably not intended by the original developer. So as we discover things over time, um, you know, these kind of vulnerabilities or holes can be used to compromise a system, get information, um, change information, things along those lines. So, um, you know, these these are disclosed. The software developers write patches for it. Um, and then, you know, we apply them and, and make the systems more secure. And it's an ongoing process, too. It's not it's not something that you're just one and done with. It's it's something you just have to stay on top of. It's like you have a house. So. You know, you have a furnace that needs maintenance. You have an air conditioner needs maintenance. You just you have to stay on top of these things. So for a company the size of Equifax to not have stayed on top of this, that's a problem. It's disgusting. <laughs> uh, also joining us again is uh, DCP Commissioner Michelle Siegel. So uh, Matt comes from the side where his clients are corporations looking to keep this information safe, their uh, information safe within companies. But what about uh, Connecticut residents who are affected? How many are we talking about? Well, we don't know yet how many Connecticut residents are going to be affected. Uh, you know, potentially almost half the people in the United States are are affected. So certainly it's going to be, I would expect, a large number of people in Connecticut. And what's really important is whether it's Equifax or not, there are 
other possibilities where people's identity is being stolen. So it's always important to take steps and protect yourself. As you pointed out, it took several months for this company to sort of let the public know about the risk that was out there. So there may be other ones that are happening now that we may not know about. So really, as a Connecticut consumer, really any consumer, it's always important to be monitoring your credit reports, to be monitoring your bank accounts, your credit card accounts, and really just be on the lookout for potentially fraudulent activity. Now, I should mention that the Connecticut Attorney General's office is one of four states that's leading the investigation into this data breach. Um, So what are some ways that people can protect themselves? Um, So there's a number of things you can do, and you're right. So Connecticut, we do have an attorney general who's been great on this and is really out in front on this issue. But as consumers, sort of four things you can do right up front to protect yourself. One, take a look at your credit reports. You're allowed to look at them once uh, for free every year, and there's, there's three agencies you can space that out if you want. So in addition to Equifax, there's Experian and TransUnion. And if you go to annualcreditreport.com, that's sort of a, a launch pad where you can go to, to look at your reports. What you're going to look want to look for on these is for any accounts that don't look familiar. So if all of a sudden it looks like there's a credit card out there that you don't ever remember having, that's going to be a flag that maybe somebody has stolen your identity. Also, you'll want to look for activity both in your credit report um, and then also in, in credit cards and other things that is not familiar, any charges that you didn't make. A second thing to do is consider putting a freeze on on your credit. So that if you put a freeze on it, it basically makes it harder for anyone to open a new account in your name. This includes yourself, of course. So if you're if you're looking to buy a new house, a car, make a huge purchase, this may not be the right time for you to be doing that. But it's certainly something uh, to give some thought to as if you have no real plans to need to open um, up any new credit lines. And that, that comes with the cost, putting the freezes on, on your account. Well, it does um, typically. Equifax, um, appropriately, is not <laughs> charging a, a freeze for theirs. And I know um, the attorney general and others are really looking to try to make Equifax reimburse people for the the cost of the freeze um, for the other two credit reporting agencies. So so it is a fees. It, it's not a huge amount relative to the cost and, and hassle of having someone steal your identity. So it's something to consider. There may be a possibility of reimbursement, although, um, you know, that's going to play itself out in court. Um, another thing to always do as a consumer um, Monitor your existing credit cards and your bank account closely, again, looking for charges that aren't familiar. Um, you can work with your uh, your bank and, and credit card company to have fraud alerts sort of on those things. So, you know, they'll I, for example, get an email anytime somebody takes money out of the ATM um, from my account. They'll tell me so I can be sure it was, in fact, me or my husband who did that. Um, another thing to do, and this may not be as obvious to people, but file your taxes early. So one thing that... Um, scammers do when they steal an identity, what they try to do is really early on file a phony tax return in your name, get the refund, and then your life becomes a lot more complicated than when you try to now file your legitimate tax return. So that's a a fourth thing to, to try to do. This is where we live. Today, we're talking about what you should do and what corporations should do after uh, the massive hack of Equifax. In studio with me is Matt Kozlowski, Vice President of Professional Services at Kelser Corporation in Glastonbury, and Michelle Siegel, Commissioner of the Connecticut Department of Consumer Protection. If you have questions, you can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. I wanted to go back to Matt. What regulations uh, really uh, force corporations, if at all, to be on top of this to make sure that this data is not easily taken. So 
it kind of depends on the industry that you're in. So um, healthcare uh, has HIPAA, for example, and um, that's that's like a well-known framework. Um, the government uh, for like uh, DOD contractors, things like that, there's NIST. In this case, um, it's kind of a self-regulating environment in a way with PCI compliance is what it's called. Um, so PCI protects um, credit card information and things along those lines. Um, uh, there's varying levels on it depending on what type of processor you are, and then they tell you, you know, these are the things that you need to do. So vulnerability scanning and having a patch management program are part of it. I think what's more alarming with this situation too is with with the PCI compliance. So obviously the current regulations and and you know the self-regulating situation maybe just isn't ideal. This isn't the first breach that Equifax has had. So if, if I encourage people to do a little bit of research over, you know, maybe even the last 10 years and see um, from, from instances of poor programming practices through missed patches and vulnerability management, the different um, breaches that, that they um, and, and companies like them have, have had. And uh, when we talk about regulations, I mean, wasn't it uh, around the time that Equifax decided to disclose that they were on, they were at Capitol Hill asking for looser uh, requirements? Well, funny thing about that. <laughs> I wanted to take a call now. Uh, Jim's calling from Newtown. Jim, you're on the show. Hi. Uh, thank you for taking my call. I found Matt's uh, description of Equifax's uh, carelessness really correct when he said it was disgusting. I would like to know when will Equifax start giving me the opportunity to check my credit for free at any time I choose? And also, um, what fine can we anticipate they should pay? Because uh, clearly this is a tremendous inconvenience to uh, all of us. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, good questions, Jim. I guess we'll start with the, the fine aspect. So <laughs> my opinion on the fine is a fine is not enough. These are financial companies. They use money um, as a way to transact business, and that's, that is totally okay. When are we going to start sending people to jail? I, like, when are there going to be criminal consequences for this? I mean, we have it for, you know, you have, you know, you steal a pack of gum and you can be arrested and, you know, for it. So, like, you're going to affect 150 million Americas and there's going to be no kind of criminal charges for that. There, that just doesn't seem right to me. So. Uh, what is our Connecticut delegation uh, talking about in terms of this hack? I'll go back to DCP Commissioner Michelle Siegel. So right now it, it is very early in the investigation. And so the attorney general here is, is taking a very aggressive stand. Um, and so they've been great on that. You know, where it goes in terms of penalties, I expect there will be, if I had to guess, based on sort of how these have played out in the past, a significant financial consequence for this. In addition, there'll be a lot of um, behavioral changes that are going to be imposed on the company in terms of reporting and in terms of trying as best as possible giving redress to consumers. So whether it's free monitoring for certain periods of time, um, you know, the caller made a, a good idea about being able to check your credit report anytime, why once a year. So I have a feeling there will be a lot of conditions placed in the company in terms of how to redress the problem that occurred now forward going to make sure it doesn't happen again. Um, we're already seeing within the company some personnel changes. So I think it's going to be a, pr a pretty significant package. And you've got, in addition to the Connecticut Attorney General, really, he's a leader of a multi-state effort to deal with this. In addition, there's the Federal Trade Commission. So there is going to be 
a lot of people looking into what went wrong and where who were all the different people and processes at fault to to try to fix that. Now remind us again the the website where people can go to get that free credit report once a year. I've done that maybe three years ago. <laughs> we um, forget. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And it's instances like this which are uh, a reminder. But it's annualcreditreport.com. Um, so that's that's a good one to go to. If, and if you have trouble, that's a long name to remember. If you go to the ftc.gov website, they have you know links to a lot of this information as well. So that may be any, uh, less of a mouthful. Now, Matt, the larger question whenever we hear about these hacks, especially with a credit reporting company, is why we are so um, attached to using the social security number as an identifier. Are we ever going to move away from this? And how complicated would that be? So- we definitely need to. The social security number um, was, you know, invented for a specific purpose, a, really a long time before we're in kind of this digital age that we're in today. Um, it would take a shift, but at some point we're going to have to start it. And um, there's technology. So people, I, you know, people have heard of Bitcoin at this point, we'll say. So Bitcoin is based, is based on a technology called uh, blockchain. So um, there's an anonymity to it, but an ability to kind of transact b- uh, business with it. Um, we could use that same kind of blockchain technology to protect identities, too. Um, it would be a monumental shift because think of like everything that's tied to a social security number today. I mean, that's the problem with it also. But um, the ability to um, to kind of dynamically change it and identify you, you know, with a digital identity instead of kind of a relic um, from before, you know, the, the digital age really would would be ideal. Uh, Commissioner Siegel, do you have anything to add about this idea of moving away from the social security number? Is is it comp- too complicated? Um, it, it would certainly be complicated. Most uh, problems can eventually be overcome. If you know whether at the end of the day, if you create a digital identification that sort of replaces the social security, I think you have to figure out how do you not run into the same challenges of somebody now stealing your digital ID and how ha- have we just moved kind of the risk to a different number. So there would be a lot to think through if, if you changed out the number. But there's definitely a whole lot tied to Social Security numbers. So there would be a lot of transitioning to try to, to make that happen. Uh, because the so many uh, Americans, uh, their information now may be in the hands of fraudsters, will the impact of this Equifax breach ever go away? Or is this going to be the norm where we have to continually make sure that we are uh, looking at our accounts, paying for the freezes if we're not opening or buying a new house? I mean, it just seems like the this is a, a new age where you're going to have to keep doing this. This is part of... <laughs> I, I think, sadly... It is part of our reality is that so much is done through these things and there's so many opportunities for breaches. You know, Equifax is probably the one who's going to be one of the most extensive, but certainly large corporations, you see this risk happen a lot. So it's always a good idea whether you know right now that you've been you've had your identity stolen or not to, to be doing those basic things, do, checking your your credit report um, you know, you can do it now three times a year, really, for free. Monitoring your credit card and bank statements for false statements. Um, there's some basic things like that where you, you can just right away sort of nip it in the bud. But I, it, it's hard to see how this is just a problem that will ever completely go away. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Ken's calling from Hartford. Ken, go ahead. Yeah, hi. So uh, a couple years ago, I did an annual credit report on the one of the free sites there, and as I was applying for a mortgage, and the bank, 
the, the free credit report was different than the credit report from the same company that the bank pulled. And the discrepancy between the two has always left me puzzled. And I was wondering if, if you might be able to comment as to why a financial institution might be getting a different kind of credit report than the free ones that they offer. Uh, okay, Ken, thanks for your question. Commissioner Siegel, any, any insight there? Um, not, o- not offhand. I would expect your credit report would be what it is. So that is a bit puzzling. And um, I, I couldn't, without knowing more, kind of understand, you know, it, it, maybe you did it at different points in time. Um, but off the top of my head, I'm not sure why that would happen. I wanted to go back to uh, Matt Kozlowski again, Vice President of Professional Services at Kelser Corporation in Glastonbury. Uh, your clients, again, are smaller companies uh, looking to stay on top of things to make sure that uh, not only their company's information safe, but they're not open to lawsuits down the line. So uh, what are some tips that you're giving them uh, moving forward? Sure. So it goes along the lines of uh, the vulnerability scanning. So staying on top of patches, um, you know, it, it, it's kind of like that routine maintenance. Um, and if, you know, if a company doesn't really have a strong IT staff, maybe they're, they have a good desktop support technician, but, but that's kind of where their skill set ends. Bring someone in to help you out. That, that's okay, you know, um, to, to do patch management or vulnerability scanning. Um, we use a multi-layered approach when we walk into things too. So it's not just about, you know, patches only. It's about um, patches and having like maybe the right firewall in place, doing things like, you know, employee awareness training. Like that's important too to, 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 to you know, defend against uh, like phishing attacks and things like that. I mentioned, uh, you know, to guard against uh, lawsuits down the line. What responsibility do companies have to their customers? So um, we're... We um, we take the position uh, um, in terms of like companies like Kelser or companies like um, the companies that you're oh, that we uh, support. supporting. It, yep. That kind of again goes back to the industry that they're in. Um, so if they're you know a law firm, a doctor's office, someone who processes payments, they have different um, industry requirements. Um, the biggest one though, I would say, is uh, especially for a small or medium business, it comes down to your reputation. Like, do you want to be known as the Equifax? <laughs> Probably not. Again, I want to thank uh, Matt Kozlowski, Vice President of Professional Services at Kelster Corporation. Thanks for coming in again. Thank you. And also Michelle Siegel, Commissioner of the Connecticut Department of Consumer Protection. Uh, Commissioner Siegel, if listeners want to know more information, can they go to DCP's website for some of these important links? Yeah, absolutely. So if you want to go to our site, ct.gov DCP, and we have under our sort of awareness and tips uh, a link for Equifax data breach, and that'll take you to... Um, information, more information about that so you can stay on top of it. And we're, we're continuing to, to take a look at what we have there to update it with uh, information. Commissioner Siegel, thanks again for coming in. Thank you. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Just ahead, we check in on PrEP and how it has the potential of dramatically changing the rate of HIV infections. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at wmpr.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up tomorrow, Connecticut's still revolutionary. 
or stuck in a rut. On the next Where We Live, in the midst of budget woes and major business losses, we'll find out what Connecticut can and should be doing to bolster its image on the national stage. Plus an update from Connecticut Ain't So Bad, a blog highlighting Connecticut's qualities. We'll hear from the women who make it all happen. That's tomorrow. Now, in 2012, the Food and Drug Administration approved Truvada, an antiretroviral drug to be used as a preventative against HIV infections. Now, fast forward five years, and drugstore chains like Walgreens have recently announced more than a dozen of its health centers around the country are now prescribing this drug. When used correctly, Truvada reduces the risk of becoming infected with HIV by more than 90 percent. But the drug is not without controversy. To tell us more, on the phone with us, Dr. A.C. Demodont, Chief Medical Officer at Anchor Health Initiative. It's a practice in Stanford and New Haven that focuses on LGBTQ health care. Dr. Demodont, uh, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. How are you? We're doing well. So before we get into Truvada, let's talk about PrEP. Uh, it's a method, not a drug. So tell us what, how does it work? Um, I, well, the medication itself is meant to prevent cells that line the tissue of an area of the body that might be infected um, from ever becoming HIV, uh, HIV infected and then subsequently taken to the bloodstream, which would then allow HIV to be viremic and a person would become infected with the HIV virus. Um, so pre-exposure prophylaxis, which is what PrEP stands for, is a a, um, a medical intervention that is done for a lot of different kinds of infections, but in this case, it's a medical intervention that is done for HIV. Now, we I talked about Truvada being approved back in 2012. Uh, but these antiretroviral drugs have been around for some time. Can you talk about how this idea for PrEP came about and this well, the genesis of it? I mean, at the time that we started to look at antiretrovirals for HIV prevention, um, some of us who have worked on this for a long time, uh, we realized that there were people who were coming into our offices. I was working in New York City at the time. There were people who were coming into the offices for post-exposure prophylaxis, meaning they had had an exposure where they thought that they had possibly been infected. They were coming in and we were putting them on medications, which then prevented them from developing HIV. Um, we noticed that some of the same people were coming in over and over and over again and ending up on post-exposure prophylaxis regimens for six, seven months out of the year. Um, so th the idea came out of using um, HIV medications as post-exposure prophylaxis. Um, it was developed initially for people who were in serodiscordant relationships, meaning somebody who one partner is HIV positive and the other is not HIV positive so that they could um, have um, truly active sex lives with one another. Um, it, it has developed over the years um, into a very, very routinely used and recommended HIV prevention strategy for anybody who has either decided to not use condoms as their primary HIV prevention strategy or who have, for whatever reason, been unable to use condoms. Um, in the United States, um, there are certainly situations where people don't have the ability to control their um, ability to, to control whether people are using condoms with them, just like in, you know, in African countries or in 
you know, Southeast Asian countries. Um, so it, it, it has developed out of the fact that despite active antiretroviral therapy and 30 years of messaging about condoms, we still had 50,000 new HIV infections in the United States every year. And so people who worked in the, who, who have worked in this field for a long time started to look at other ways to Im- enhance HIV prevention. Now, Dr. Demidon, uh, you mentioned that there are 50,000 new uh, cases of HIV infection each year in the U.S. Uh, with Truvada out on the market, how many of the at-risk population are using this? Is there this uh, flip side, this controversy that this could encourage uh, unsafe sex? So that was one of the interesting um, that was one of the interesting arguments against PrEP within the medical community was that. <clears throat> By prescribing antiretroviral to prevent HIV, we would suddenly be encouraging people to um, participate in unsafe and be- unsafe behaviors. Um, you know, the major study that got H- that got Truvada approved by the FDA actually looked at that, and they, as part of the evaluation and analysis from the trial. Um, they looked at whether people's behavior changes, whether people's behavior significantly changed, um, changed while they were being prescribed Truvada, and also getting regular HIV prevention counseling. And that actually data does not show that behaviors do change. Now, I think that as um, PrEP is more widely used, I think that that will have to be reevaluated. And I think that there have been a couple of major centers you know, San Francisco Department of Public Health and New York City Department of Public Health that have been looking at STD rates in people who are using PrEP, and there has been an increase in STD rates. So um, I think that the data will be forthcoming. Um, however, I think that what it does show is that we certainly will need to enhance um, screening for other sexually transmitted diseases, mm-hmm. which ultimately means that perhaps people have reduced their condom use with the uh, advent of widespread use of PrEP, more widespread use of PrEP. Um, In terms of uh, the at-risk populations, are they getting PrEP? You know, I think that um, we're getting better. I think that this is not something that is commonly prescribed um, by primary care doctors. I think that the Department of Health in Connecticut has been very aggressive about trying to train primary care doctors on the use of pre-exposure prophylaxis. However, I think that to really reach some of the more difficult-to-reach populations, um, we will need to have increased awareness amongst medical providers about how to prescribe PrEP and how to recognize um, people who are certainly at high risk for HIV infection. You mentioned uh, Connecticut Department of Public Health. Uh, we heard from a caller uh, who says that there's a website in Connecticut, prepnowct.org, uh, for there people is. who are interested in PrEP to find doctors that they'll consult with, including you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes, there is. Um, and also, and this might be um, the Connecticut, the state, the Commissioner of Health, Dr. Pino, has just commissioned a uh, ending, getting to zero uh, commission, which we had our first meeting um, last uh, earlier this month, and you know, part of the strategy of that commission, I believe, will be to try to reach the hard quote hard to reach populations in Connecticut. You know, young MS men who have sex with men of color, transgender individuals um, who are, are, are um, 
African-American women, people who are at very high risk for HIV in Connecticut. So yeah, there, I would definitely look at the Connecticut Department of Health website. It is an excellent, um, it is an excellent, uh, tool and it can provide, uh, can, people can find providers in their areas who prescribe PrEP. Uh, this is where we live on the phone with us, Dr. A.C. Demadon, Chief Medical Officer at Anchor Health Initiative, a practice in Stanford and New Haven that focuses on LGBTQ health care. Today we're talking about PrEP and uh, when using drugs like Truvada effectively, it can redu- reduce new HIV infections by more than 90 percent. Now, we keep, we keep talking about Truvada, but is it costly? Is that one of the barriers, Dr. Demadon? So, uh, you know, initially, certainly there was a lot of uh, difficulty with getting Truvada covered by uh, medical plans. However, when the CDC and the World Health Organization enhanced their recommendations for use of pre-exposure prophylaxis as an HIV prevention strategy and put it on all of their guidelines, the majority of the insurance companies have um, have begun to cover uh, Truvada. Um, certainly, the state of Connecticut has been extremely active in ensuring that Connecticut Medicaid covers um, Truvada for HIV prevention. Um, You know, it can be a bit of a process to get Truvada covered, and a lot of times we have to do prior authorizations for the medication, um, which is why it's good to go to a place that has prescribed PrEP frequently because um, it's not just that a doctor has to or the medical provider has to know how to prescribe PrEP. It's that the office staff has to know how to go through the process of getting it covered by people's insurances. Um, another issue has been, you know, young people who have never really had medical problems who picked very high deductible, low premium um, plans. And now we're asking them to get a whole bunch of labs and to pay for a medication out of pocket for thousands of dollars. So there are definitely copay assistance programs that exist, um, uh, both from pharmaceutical companies as well as other philanthropic organizations that help for people to get the medication covered. So although it is a little bit of a barrier, I think that if you are going to a practice where they know the processes well, it just sometimes is a matter of working through that process to get it covered by insurances. Now, is there a generic on the market now? There is not a generic on the market currently. Um, there are certainly uh, um, there. Uh, Truvada soon, I believe, will come off of patent, um, but uh, currently there isn't. Now, we had talked about some of the barriers, whether uh, they have insurance, if they even know the drug is out there. But when you are prescribed Truvada, for it to be truly effective, you have to take, remember to take yeah, it every day. Exactly. And how, how, how <laughs> difficult is that for your patients that you've seen? Um, so I think that, you know, this is, I don't think that this is a unique phenomenon to Truvada, though. I mean, this is like any medication. If you don't take it, it's not going to work. If the blood pressure medicine, diabetes medication, any other intervention, if you don't take it, the medication isn't going to work. Um, so I think that uh, this is not a medication that is prescribed um, lightly, um, it is a medication that there has to be a lot of counseling around, and the uh, people need to understand the reasons why it is recommended to be taken daily currently. There have been studies looking at using it less than daily, and uh, although 
those studies look promising, it, it is still recommended as a daily medication. Um, I would say that if you counsel patients well on why this medication needs to be taken daily, um, I think that there is reason to, there is good success with getting people to be adherent to the medication. Um, I also think that there's a lot of motivation around not wanting to become HIV positive and um, I think that one of the difficulties that we have with some of the more hard to reach populations is that uh, the counseling takes time and we need to spend a lot of time with people when we're prescribing that. So I, again, I, I think that um, it's important to find a provider who has experienced prescribing this medication because there is a significant amount of counseling and that, which definitely improves people's adherence to the medication. Uh, we've been focusing in on Truvada, but generally uh, within uh, among the population who are HIV positive, if they're taking the trio of antiretroviral drugs, uh, what are some of the latest research that shows that they can't transmit uh, the infection? Right. So, um, you know, just the U.S. Conference on AIDS just happened, and certainly we know that um, treatment as prevention or TASP, which means getting HIV people, positive people on, um, on medication to control their HIV, uh, is a very, very effective way at reducing people's uh, uh, infectiousness. You know, at the U.S. Conference on AIDS, Anthony, Anthony Fauci gave a um, really quite um, compelling uh, presentation, and there's a new U equals U, which basically means undetectable, uh, means uh, equals untransmittable, which means that if somebody is undetectable on their antiretrovirals that they are not able to transmit their HIV to somebody else. And we'll probably have to leave it there. We're out of time, but we do appreciate your time, Dr. A.C. Demadon, again, Chief Medical Officer at Anchor Health Initiative, a practice in Stanford and New Haven that focuses on LGBTQ health care. Dr. Demadon, thanks so much. No, thank you very much. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Special thanks to Where We Live senior producer Lydia Brown. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.